Welcome to Thoughtlines, a podcast exploring the freshest and most unconventional thinking at CRASH, the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. I'm Catherine Galloway, and in this episode we ask, what does it mean to be young in an ageing world? Today I'm talking to journalist and writer Trish Lawrence, who in May 2021 won the global essay competition known as the Nine Dots Prize. Administered at Crash, this prize for a book that hasn't been written yet attracted nearly 700 entries from 92 countries. But it was Trish's answer that made the judges sit up, challenging them to look again at the youngest continent on the planet, Africa, and reconsider it as a place of pure potential. Her work is rooted in the now, but she wanted to start by meeting somewhere very old indeed. Good morning, Trish. Good morning. Here we are in Jesus College. It's a bit grand, isn't it? It's very grand. It's very beautiful. Well... I have to say, first of all, huge congratulations. You've won the Nine Dots Prize. I know. Thank you. I still can't believe it, to be honest. Well, I first heard your name, I have to tell you, exactly on the 11th of May <laughs> this year, OK, when I interviewed Professor Simon Goldhill, the chair of the Nine Dots Prize, for Thoughtlines, and he just phoned you, literally the night before, to tell you that you'd won, and your 3,000-word essay had been the most compelling, thought-provoking, out-of-the-box entry that they'd had to this competition, which is international, anonymous, could be anybody, and it was you. It still gives me goosebumps when you say that. (laughs) The Nine Docs question this year, of course, was, what does it mean to be young in an ageing world? And what you won, let's just refresh, is $100,000, which buys you a year of writing time, a book contract with Cambridge University Press, which is what you're meant to be writing, And also this term here in Cambridge, a full term here in Cambridge to work on it. And here you are. Here I am. It's, it does still blow my mind, I have to say, every day. Like when I wake up in Cambridge and I'm here and I'm working on this project. I mean, the money, it's wonderful, obviously. But the most amazing thing about it is the time that it gives you to really, really get into something that I've been passionate about for a long, long time. And to have the time to really dig deep. In my case, I was doing some on-the-ground research in Africa to be able to afford to do that. It's a gift of a prize. And then being here in Cambridge is the icing on the cake, really. Now, Trish, you've never been in Cambridge before and you're only here, sadly, for a matter of weeks. And we're catching you just as you're about to go. But when I asked you where we should meet, you immediately said Jesus College. Now, tell me why. Jesus College is the first place in the world to return an artefact from the Benin Kingdom to Nigeria. It's a bronze cockerel. And I find that wonderful that this is happening. And it's quite apt for my book because I'm also talking about how we can reconsider our attitudes towards Africa. And I'm, I'm really proud that somewhere like this is doing this, you know, that we're finally getting to that point. Yes, this bronze was travelling back to Nigeria just as you were arriving here, having been in Nigeria researching on your book. (laughs) That's right. Yes, exactly. A Benin bronze belongs to the Kingdom of Benin, which is now in the middle of modern-day Nigeria. That's right. And Jesus College has had this cockerel since 1905. It was the gift of, I believe, a father 
of a student here, and it was looted from the court of Benin in 1897. Yes, it wasn't the only bronze. I mean, there was huge amounts of stunning craftsmanship and artwork that were decorating the palace of the Oba of Benin, the king of Benin. And when the British imperial forces took Benin, I guess that's the way to put it, they looted all of these bronzes. There are many in the British Museum. And then there's this one here, and this one is the one that's gone home. I think the father gifting that cockerel to his son's college would think that was a perfectly normal thing to do. And it's only now, it's taken 116 years for us to realise that that was absolutely wrong. I mean, and to be honest, we haven't really realised it because it's a very small gift back out of a very large amount of objects, not just from Benin, you know, that are still held outside of African countries by former colonial powers. So, Trish, it seems to me that a lot of your project, as well as the project of returning the bronze and the college like Jesus, examining what it really holds in its possession and whether it has the right to hold those things. All of that is part of a wider concern about setting the record straight. So very luckily, I can actually show you the record today because the archivist at Jesus, Katie Green, has looked out for us the original document of gift of this cockerel in 1905. And we can look at how this story started for Jesus and then talk about where we should be going with our story writing from now on. Sounds great. big red door into East House at Jesus College, which holds the college's archives. Hello, good morning. I'm Catherine Galloway. Pleased Hi. to meet you. Hi. Are you Katie? Yes. Hi, and this is Trish. So Trish, what we're looking at here is a lined ledger, in a way, beautifully leather-bound, lovely inked, marbled end papers, propped open for us, and here is the actual entry, May 22nd, 1905. Agreed gratefully to accept W.G.W. Neville's gift of the bronze figure of a cock, which formed part of the spoil captured at Benin, West Africa. Wow, and to thank W. Neville for making this appropriate gift to the college. Appropriate is quite a word, isn't Yes, it? and I find it really interesting that they're quite openly talking about it being part of the spoil of, of being captured there and taking it. Today, we would say looted in a way, wouldn't we? And the cock is a symbol of the college. So it was a very appropriate gift in a way, and yet in other ways, <laughs> feels a little challenging in the modern age to read that. And there's the master's signature, H.A. Morgan at the time. Um, in his ink pen, Beautiful. signing that, saying, yes, thank you, we would like that cockerel, please. It brings it so fresh when you yeah. see it written like this, doesn't it? Yeah. And of course, I'm imagining that there'll be a similar deed of re-gift written in the college ledgers oh. from last month, signed by the current master, Sonita Alanye, who really drove forward this Return. world first. Wonderful. Well, let's head off somewhere even quieter than the archive office, Trish, <laughs> if that's good. possible, <laughs> and uh, get into the real subject of what you're going to be writing about. Great. So, Trish, we're sitting back down again now round the table, and 
I have to keep coming back to that phone call, the Nine Dots phone call. I know you were working uh, as a journalist and a writer in Berlin at that point. Was it just an ordinary day for you, dealing with deadlines, scribbling away when you got it? What happened? I'd been having a pretty good day, actually, with friends. It was the middle, well, it was May, but it was a lovely sunny day. And and I hadn't been paying that much attention to my phone. And I'd had three missed calls from the same number. And so when it came up again, I made, I was actually with friends and I said, I need to take this call. I don't know what it's about, but they're obviously trying to get hold of me. And honestly, I was stunned. That's the only word I can use. I was stunned, a little bit hysterical. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Honestly, I was I was actually struck dumb for a, for a second. It was one of those things that only happens once in your life, I think, when someone rings you to tell you you've won this amazing prize. Simon Goldhill, who made that phone call to you, calls it a silence worth hearing. <laughs> <laughs> that that first few seconds of just total disbelief. Yes, disbelief. And even when I hung up on the call and then told my friends, oh my God, I've won that prize, which is pretty much exactly what I said. Everyone was silent with shock and surprise. None, all of us were sort of, ah, uh, took our breath away. <laughs> it was amazing. You've got tears in your eyes oh, as yeah. you're telling me that. Oh, that's incredible. Well, what happened when you put the phone down? How did things <laughs> move on from there? Because then the clock starts ticking. The, t- the nine dots deadline is, is it's, tight. It's tight. It's insane. Well, we did drink quite a bit of champagne that night, which was great. Um, so then immediately I had to finish up some projects I was working on. I tried to do that within a couple of weeks so that by the time the prize was announced at the beginning of June, I was dedicating myself full time to it. I started off doing quite a lot of desk research Uh, looking for the people that I wanted to talk to because I was planning to go to Nigeria. I planned a trip to Nigeria. Then I caught COVID uh, and my trip had to be postponed for two or three weeks. And then I was on the ground in Lagos and in Abuja meeting young people for just over a month. And then when I came back, writing my first draft, working on my draft and here in Cambridge trying to polish it up with six months is pretty tight it is to do all of that it's terrifyingly tight had you entered the nine dots prize before and if not what made you enter for this question I hadn't entered before this was the first time I entered and there was a couple of reasons one was uh, because it was COVID time now I'm a journalist but I wasn't working as much out and about as I normally was so I had a little bit more time to sit and think and really, you know, prepare how I want to answer the question. But the main reason really was that the question touched a bit of a nerve in me. Um, I'd spent the year really closely following the Black Lives Matter protests and also reading a little bit around critical race theory and thinking about my own reporting and how that was, you know, influenced by my Western whiteness, I guess. And so when I saw this question, I was a little bit irritated because it was. A, I felt it was quite a... Western-centric question, how does it feel to be young in an ageing world, when in fact there is one region of the world, Africa, which is not ageing at all. It's the complete opposite, in fact. 77% of Africans are under the age of 35. So that when I saw that question, I just thought, I have an answer to this. I think this, this question is too Western-centric at a time when really we need to be taking a more global look. I know that Simon was very struck by the facts that you used in that first 3,000-word essay, and it got all the prize jury thinking, oh, wow, we have missed something. And as you say in the draft chapters that I've been lucky enough to read, the continent of Africa remains a blind spot for most of the global north. So with that sort of 
stab of irritation and also the journalistic desire to tell the story that isn't being told, you sat down and got cracking. How long did it take you to write the essay, the 3,000 words that you entered? It did take a little while, actually. I think I took over a period of about three or four weeks. I, I mean, I wasn't writing it the whole time, but thinking about it and refining it and doing research. And yeah, I took a little bit of time. I had time. It was December 2020. We were in lockdown, so I wasn't doing any big stories. And I took my time with it because I was enjoying it also. So. Well, that, I think, came across very much to the jury that you were writing with such passion. And the thing that... Uh, Simon Goldhill told me afterwards that had touched him in your reaction was you said thank you so much for the opportunity to do this project because it means so much to me. Yeah it's a it really is it's something I've been thinking about and genuinely thinking about uh, for a long time that would be to give voice to some of these people who don't get voice in a way that isn't a cliched way you know to really tell the stories there and the prize is wonderful for that because it you know, it's a very generous prize, but what it buys you is time and the ability to go somewhere like Nigeria and really spend time there and talking to people. And then as a journalist, a lot of the time you're on a crazy deadline, you know, and this is quite a tight deadline for what I'm producing, but it's also a long period of time to really get into a story properly. It's wonderful. Yeah, wonderful. I still pinch myself. So the question piqued a little bit of, let's say, journalistic annoyance in you, but you can see where it's coming from, can't you? We are overall ageing. In most parts of the world, we're in an ageing world. I think it was in 2018, for the first time in human history, there are more people aged over 65 than under five. And by the end of this century, for every birth, there will be an octogenarian. So we're really coming to a time in most parts of the world, when there are going to be more care homes and kindergartens and more funerals than celebrations of birth. But there's one part of the world that's bucking that trend, and that is sub-Saharan Africa. And 19 out of the world's 20 youngest countries by population are in sub-Saharan Africa. 19 out of 20. It's amazing, isn't it? Really, this is what I what I keep coming back to in the book. It's What's interesting, I think, is when this... This youth bulge is what it's termed sort of uh, demographically has been known about for at least well, half a decade or more. And when it was first reported, there was a general feeling in the West that this is a problem, you know, too many young people in Africa, but which is a, a kind of a horrible way to think about it because as we're ageing, not only do we need young people anyway, but why would they be a problem? You know, we're so them and us about it. That's, I think, one of the interesting things about this. How had you first got interested in writing about Africa or reporting from Africa and specifically young Africa? The knowledge that you had to answer the question, where did that come from? I'm actually not an Africa expert by any means. Um, I have reported from West Africa for the British newspapers on various different stories at various different times and also from Lusophone Africa for when I was based in Portugal as a correspondent. But the reason that every time I visited, the cities in Africa are so full of energy and vibrancy. And you really notice it when you come from Europe, how young everyone is. Everyone is young. And it gives this kind of amazing buzz to the cities there. And so I've always loved being in Africa and I've always noticed how young it is and how exciting and vibrant it is. And so 
having that knowledge and having, as I said, been thinking a lot more about uh, critical race theory and other things like that, the two things together just made me want to answer that question. But I'm a very big fan of African cities. Cities are really important to the generation that you're going to be writing about in your book. Why are they so important? Well, I mean, 50 years ago, Africa was fairly agrarian. You know, most people lived in villages, but that is just not the case anymore. Um, More than half of the people under age of 30 live in cities and in some really big mega cities, sometimes like Lagos, for example. And cities are disruptors. When people come together, uh, they find like-minded people, they think, start to think differently, they hear different influences, they become more innovative and creative. That's cities across the world. And this generation are children of cities, not villages, and they, they are emerging as a very different generation to the people that preceded them, in part because of urbanisation. You describe Lagos as the New York of Africa. <laughs> and on your research trip, for this book, just before arriving in Cambridge, you really zeroed in on a group of young Nigerians in Lagos and Abuja between the ages of 20 and 35. And you're calling them, if I'm pronouncing this right, the Soro Soke generation. Tell me what that means. So Soro Soke is a Yoruba phrase and Yoruba are the people around Lagos, the, the tribe from around Lagos. And in Yoruba, it means speak out or speak up this generation that I met are very confident, outspoken, self-possessed. And everyone who is older than this generation that I spoke to referenced their their sort of speak up mentality and their bravery. And it's it's true that they're addressing a lot of things from cultural mores to campaigning for further justice and more access to power. And they're just very confident, outspoken generation in a good way. I, that's why I sort of used that phrase for them. It must have been a delight to interview them then. You know, you just press play on your recorder and off they go and tell you all sorts of things. What did they tell you that surprised you the most? Well, perhaps surprised isn't the right word, but impressed. I was so impressed by their can-do attitude. You know, there are still some pretty big problems in most and lots of Africa, you know, access to health, access to education, uh, even it's finance, for example, banking and things. These were things that have been really difficult for people to access. And this generation is just owning that and solving those problems. And they have this expression of like, no one else is going to come and do it, so we have to do it for us. And they see opportunity in these problems, like opportunities for business, opportunities to help others. Perhaps the thing that most came out for me is this idea that they're not focused just on themselves. One young woman who's a graphic designer noticed that it was a very male-dominated industry and she decided she wanted to see if she could attract other women and she said, I'm going to do some free training if anyone's interested. And she expected five or ten people to come along and she got 300 in the first one. Wow. And in the last year and a half she's trained 3,000 women for free to start to get careers in graphic design. And she said, I don't want to win alone. And I think that's really a common thought. You know, I want others to win with me. So I can see that what you're really, really trying to do with this project is not speaking for a generation, but speaking to them and really listening in that journalistic way to what they have to say, what they want to tell you, what they're excited about. Tell me a little bit more about that approach and how it helped you structure the project. Yes, I mean, that was very, very important to me because I... I'm not an Africa expert, but also I don't believe in Africa experts in a way. I think that we've always had this idea of a supremacy of ours over Africa. 
And there's this super quote from a Nigerian novelist called Chinua Achebe. He was speaking in an interview. He said, there's this great proverb that until lions have their own historians, the history of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. So storytelling is something we have to do so that the story of the hunt will also reflect the agony, the travail, the bravery even of the lions. And then so what I wanted to do was to ask young Nigerians to tell me their stories, to be the megaphone for their stories, because I think of them as as the young lions who will inherit the 21st century, basically. Just what you're saying there, Trish, really reminds me of the art director that you interviewed in Lagos, Chekubwe Okonyo, who's a founder and art director at a company called Magic Carpet Animation Studios, which is just wonderful. And you quote him saying, a lot of people have come to me and asked me, how do we make it ours? How do we make it African? And yet he goes on to say, the question really is, if I make it, are you open enough to accept it? So actually that suggests, you know, what we should be looking very closely at Africa and very closely at this energy and these young people producing this incredible stuff that is their own, that is in utterly their image. They don't need us in the West at all, but we should be looking to them because they really are cutting edge. That's right. What's interesting, I think, with this generation is that they they are connected to the West and they are influenced to some degree, as we all are, by, you know, different cultures, but they no longer see the West as a lodestar. They no longer see it as this is what we need to follow, this is what we aspire to. They're very, very much focused on their own cultures, on their own life, on Africa and the issues that it faces and the issues that they're facing day by day. And they're very proud of their Africanity and they're expressing it loudly, speaking up loudly about their Africanity. And, you know, by the end of this decade, 60% of working age people on the planet will be African. That's, you know, that's in eight years. And so this is the engine room of the 21st century. These are the people who are going to lead us through and solve the problems that we're going to face in the next, you know, 80 to 100 years. And we really should be looking to them and listening to them and understanding what they're interested in and what they're working on and what they need. The youth and age conflict Mm -hmm. you draw out a little bit in your upcoming book as well, the idea that there's a little bit of friction, there's the respect that one gives to one's elders, but there's also friction because this is a young, restless generation who are incredibly connected, incredibly competent, and yet they're nowhere near the centres of power. That You know, we've got a president in Nigeria who's been there for... I don't know, how many years? He's been president since 2015, but he was also a president when he conducted a military coup in the 1980s. So he's been in and around the echelons of power since the 1980s, you know, 40 years. And there's a tradition in Africa to venerate your elders and to listen to them and and that the young people don't deserve to be heard. You know, they're not ready to be heard. They're not ready to lead. That's the messages that they get. But they're the vast, vast majority of the population. Only 3% of Nigerians are over 65. 40% are under 14. I mean, you know, this... 40% of Nigerians are under 14. Are under 14. That's right. And so when you have this mass 
electorate, I mean, under 14, obviously, aren't voting, but there's this mass electorate between 18 and 35 who feel that they're not being listened to and that their needs are not being met. And it is, there is definitely friction and definitely a desire for greater youth representation within parliament, but also within society. One of the areas where they're able to do that is in the tech industry. Nigeria has the biggest tech industry in Africa. And a lot of the young people I spoke to is talk to me about the freedom that this tech industry gave them because it's run by young people for young people with this kind of energy and they they see what they're able to do there the problems they're able to solve how they're able to run their businesses and they want to kind of transfer that into other parts of their lives and that means of course that access to tech which you know perhaps the older generation doesn't really understand and isn't interested in owning that allows this generation of africans not just nigerians but africans as a whole, to be global. They can literally reach out to anybody, anywhere. Exactly. That's a game changer. It's a total game changer, particularly for people under 25, because even 10 years ago in sub-Saharan Africa, internet access was very, very limited, like under 10% of the population. It's much, much higher, not everywhere, but in many countries like Nigeria, close to 80%. And People are able to connect across Africa. Africa is very poorly connected on physical infrastructure still to this day. In everyday life, you don't get to meet people from other African countries so easily. But now on social media, for example, they're able to connect in a pan-African way. They're also able to connect globally and have conversations on an equal footing globally with their peers and other people and to start putting their own narratives, their own versions of their life, their own stories out there, instead of being the the subject of the story, if that makes sense. It's really liberating people. In your draft chapters that I've read, you quote the UN's World Population Prospect, which says, in all plausible scenarios of future trends, Africa will play a central role in shaping the size and the distribution of the world's population over the next few decades. In other words, let's wake up here. You know, this is well overdue, the fact that we're addressing this now. Absolutely. And we've, in the last, I guess, 20 years, we've talked a lot about BRIC countries, you know, Brazil, India, places, China, places like that. But all of those countries are facing significant population declines. By the end of the century, China will be half the size that it is now. You know, and Africa is the only place which is still growing. There'll be a billion young people in Africa by the end of the century. It's got to stop being a blind spot, you know. It's a hive of of opportunity and energy and talent. And it's been wonderful to talk to them. And, yeah, I hope when people read the book that they're getting inspired and excited by it like, like I did. Would you like to read this book when it comes out in May of 2022? Who do you want it to speak to? I think that primarily this is a book for people in the global north, for them to read it and, and perhaps reconsider the preconceptions they have about Africa. And perhaps they don't have preconceptions, but just to understand the situation on the ground today. Obviously, the young Africans I spoke to will hopefully read it also. They don't need uh, my validation or our validation, but I hope that when they read it, they'll be reminded of you know how awesome they are and what great things they're doing. In many ways, the whole reason that the Nine Dots Prize exists is to find fresh voices on some of the biggest social challenges we're facing in our world today and to reward 
nine dots thinking, in other words, thinking outside the box. So I get a sense that this is going to change you in quite a big way, being a nine dots winner, but also writing on this issue, which has not been addressed. Where do you think you're going to go next? It's it's difficult to know, isn't it? I would love to spend more time in Africa and perhaps this is obviously Nigeria is a very big and important country in the region, but it's not the only country and there would be very different stories in other parts of sub-Saharan Africa. But I also don't want to be in this position of being an expert on Africa when I'm, you know, European, white European. Um, so I would really like to do some collaborative projects if I could with young people on the continent. I don't know exactly what. I feel that there's some really interesting opportunities that come out of winning this prize. It's a gift in so many ways, really. Did you always want to be a writer? Did you always want to be a journalist? Tell me a little bit about the thought lines that got you to here. Um, I've always been a writer and a big reader as well, actually. But when I was about 10 years old, I wrote, I wrote a book called On the Habits of Chickens. <laughs> Trish, I love it. We had new chickens and I wanted to be the next Gerald Durrell. <laughs> Where were those chickens? Where were you growing up? I grew up in the outback of Australia uh, in a mining town called Mount Isa and everyone had lots of land and we had some chickens. Um, but I've always wanted to be a writer and I worked in a library when all my friends were working in cool boutiques and things when I had a Saturday job. But then after I graduated, it didn't, it didn't seem, I know this, it didn't seem feasible as a career somehow. And I did, I worked in advertising and marketing and I became a journalist about, I 20 years ago, I did a postgrad diploma. I love being a journalist. Um, and this is my first big book length project. So it's very exciting. That's amazing. I, I can't help drawing an immediate parallel between you writing about chickens as your first interview subject. And now here we are talking about the bronze. Here we are talking yeah. about the bronze cockerel. <laughs> There's nice. a link. Yeah, it's quite nice when life happens like that, isn't it? I hadn't it? thought about that. But what about, I mean, you've travelled all over the world, but you're always restless. Yes, I've always been restless. So I'm German, actually. I was born in Germany. When I was uh, about 10 years old, my family immigrated to Australia. My mum's Australian. And we lived, I lived there till after university and then I left and I've travelled. I think I've been to 75, 78 countries. Wow. But I've only, I mean, I've lived in Britain and in Europe and in India and in Australia, but I haven't lived in 78 countries. But I am restless. Maybe that's... That's a, I think that's also perhaps why I took this approach to the question in that I'm not very focused on one country specifically because I've lived all over and travelled all over. So I have a more global way of looking at things perhaps. Which is absolutely what was needed. <laughs> <laughs> I know, Trish, that you haven't been to Cambridge before and, of course, winning the prize in, it involved you literally having to pack your bags and get here. I know as we're both journalists, you won't have left your reporting hat behind. You will be still looking at us in the same way as you were looking um, for your stories uh, in Nigeria. What do you make of us? We're a very <laughs> old, outwardly fusty-looking city, <laughs> but what are we like? Do we have dynamism too? <laughs> I mean, absolutely dynamism in terms of thought and intellect. I'm a visiting fellow in Crash, and every week there's a talk given by other fellows. Amazing, such a variety of topics, such such intellects. I mean, there's lots of dynamism. But actually, the thing that I'm going to take away with me is this: is the other traditions and how they're still so active. You know, when you go to a high table dinner and it's all lit by candles and the grace is in Latin, and there's something beautiful about that, even though it's 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 very, very traditional. There's something very nice about the 
ongoingness of that. I mean, I guess the challenge is to find some dynamism on top, but I think the young students you bring in and the weight of intellect that you find in Cambridge brings that. It's an amazing city. The fact that it's hosting the Nine Dots Prize, I think, is very encouraging because it is saying, do you know what? We don't know everything at this university and we need to bring in other voices, other talents from way outside because this is an essay competition that is open to literally anybody, anywhere in the world. So you could have the Sorosoke generation writing in. It's judged anonymously. They could be the next winners. Well, that's right, and that would be amazing. And I think this year there were nearly 700 entries from all over the world. The last winner, Annie, was from India, for example. So it's been a diverse set of winners already. I have to say, though, we ought to talk about the questions, which are really fiendish. I mean, (laughs) the first Nine Dots question was, are digital technologies making politics impossible. And the first winner, of course, was James Williams, who was only up the road in Oxford, but his book was Stand Out of Our Light, Freedom and Resistance in the Attention Economy. So that was fascinating. And the second question, two years later, is there still no place like home? And as you mentioned, Annie Zaidi from India, a journalist and writer, also won that with Bread, Cement, Cactus, A Memoir of Belonging and Dislocation. I've got both of those books here. I've read both of them. They're astonishing. I think we should have a go as journalists (laughs) to try and come up with the next one. We've done home. We've done politics. We've done ageing and youth. Where should we go next? I mean, my instinct is that really we need to do something on the environment. It'll be interesting to see which direction they take on that, some nice curveball around it. The other thing I'm quite interested in is um, AI, because I think our capabilities in developing AI is ahead of our ethical considerations around AI. What about you? What do you think? I agree with you about the environment and the climate. It has to be, especially for a global question and a global audience, it has to be climate, but it needs to be asked in such a way that people could answer it freshly because that's the whole point of the prize. Perhaps also, I mean, another question that might be quite interesting, although This one also touched on politics is something around democracy, because particularly in Africa, for example, there's a lot of debate by young people. How can we get this democracy to work better? So there are issues with corruptions and mismanagement in Nigeria, for example, and and not just in this global south. I mean, there are plenty of issues closer to home than that. So there could also be some questions around what is the future of democracy in a world like ours? You know, is this an outdated idea now back from 1798, for example? You heard it here first, everybody. (laughs) That's Trish Lorenz, Nine Dots winner, giving us possibly a sneak peek of the next question. I don't know. Absolutely not, no. I don't know what it will be. Well, Trish, I wish you all the very best in finishing your book. I know it's got to be finished and in the hands of Cambridge University Press by December, am I right? The 31st of December, or the 3rd of January, actually, but I'm aiming for the... I would really like to have a new year, really celebrating my handover. (laughs) Going into a young year with your... With your uh, draft done and dusted, and then it will be published by CUP in May May 22. That's right. I'll be first in the queue to read it. (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) Trish, it's been an absolute delight to talk to you today on Thoughtlines. Thank you so much for sitting down with me and exploring this amazing question and your answer to it and where we should be going next. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely. Trish Lawrence's book will also be available in an open access format from Cambridge University Press upon publication this spring. Check ninedotsprize.org 
for updates. Thoughtlines is presented by me, Catherine Galloway, and produced by Carl Homer for Cambridge TV on behalf of CRASH, the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. Join us again next time for more academic thinking outside the box.